Support comes from the Norton Simon Museum, presenting the film series Testigo Witness, Goya in the Movies. Held on select Fridays in May, each film touches upon artist Francisco de Goya's visions of the world, kicking off with Pan's Labyrinth by Guillermo del Toro on May 10th at NortonSimon.org. You have the chance to win a Spring Super Sweeps from Alleist. Donate $60 for one entry to win a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Check out all the other prizes, too, when you donate now at laist.com slash sweeps. Good morning, it's Hair Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Hope you had a great start to your morning, and it's so good to have you with us wherever you're listening in Southern California on any of our terrestrial transmitter locations or listening on the LAist app or at LAist.com. Such a pleasure to have so many more listeners who are with us from other parts of the United States or even listening internationally. We have a jam-packed program for you today, second hour. As is typical, it's TV talk. Our critics reviewing the best of new television. There's a lot of anticipation about strong series to get us going in the new year. We're also going to talk about the challenges streaming companies are having retaining their subscribers. As their costs have gone up, the fees they charge to people subscribing to these services, they're seeing more churn, more people People are saying, eh, maybe I, I can live without this particular streaming platform for a given period of time until they have a new series that I must see. So we'll talk about how they're trying to deal with that. But we begin with a huge real estate deal in Los Angeles where the West Side Pavilion which was so popular for decades as a shopping destination with restaurants and anchor department stores and the like on the west side of Los Angeles, had fallen on hard times. Google was going to be opening up a campus for its employees, but of course, uh, with the pandemic, that changed how companies look at their workspaces. 700,000 square feet are there at the former West Side Pavilion, and now it will belong to UCLA with a from the LA Daily News, reporter Clara Harder. Clara, thank you so much for being with us. Uh, share with us what the site is going to be used for by the university. Yes, it's going to be used to house two of UCLA's cutting-edge research programs. The first is the California Institute for Immunology and Immunotherapy. The second is the UCLA Center for Quantum Science and Engineering. Uh, which may sound like a lot of gibberish to people who haven't studied these specific things like me before I reported on this, but immunology um, fights disease through better understanding the immune system, while quantum science helps advance technology through better understanding subatomic particles, which are the tiny building blocks of our universe. So really exciting things. Uh, They're talking about developing cures for cancer and building supercomputers. So um, Definitely uh, very different from a shopping center, but has a lot of great potential. Well, in this part of a purchase spree of UCLA, they purchased a building in downtown Los Angeles and uh, the old Marymount uh, College on Palos Verdes. UCLA is taking over that. So we see UCLA clearly responding to the fact that it's the most applied to university in the United States. And they're really landlocked without a lot of room to expand on the Westwood campus. So they're looking for opportunities like this. Definitely. I mean, 
as you mentioned, it's the most applied to university in the nation. And out of all the nine UC undergraduate campuses, it's the smallest. So these 700,000 square feet are greatly appreciated. Um, and they bought it for the pretty significant um, cost of $700 million. Uh, they're getting $20 million in state funding up front to help fund the center with another $300 million uh, to support the research in the future. So uh, lots of money flowing and lots of new space being set up for UCLA. Definitely really exciting for the city of L.A. Now, you said $20 million. I think it was $200, 200 wasn't million. it? Yeah, 200 that they put up front. So that's a total of $500 million that you mentioned of the $700 million purchase price. Um, do you know if Google was involved in facilitating this at all? I know they didn't own the property. They weren't the seller, but do you know if they were involved? Yes, they were definitely involved. They've also committed a, a small pot of funding themselves. Um, and they they really supported this idea because uh, they're also huge in the tech world. So they were a key player at the table. And uh, Governor Newsom making the public announcement of this. What what kind of a timeline are we looking at? Because uh, obviously the physical space has to be rehabilitated to to be used as a research facility. Then you've got to bring in all this cutting edge, very expensive equipment that's going to be used for the research there. And a staff is going to have to be hired to operate out of the center. So what's the timeline to do all of this? Yeah, I, the timeline is a little loose right now, but what Newsom said yesterday is we're looking at about 40 months uh, to redevelop the building and, and get it ready with all this technology. So that would put us in about May 2027. Uh, and then he suggested that the competitive talent recruitment, really trying to get the best of the best, uh, will likely take another two years. All right. So a lot of time that's involved in this. Has there been any response from the neighbors to this? I, I, I would think that there would be a lot of support for it, given uh, you're not going to be seeing presumably the kind of car trips that you would if it was used for a commercial purpose. Yeah. As far as I can tell, the neighborhood is pretty excited. I mean, back in the day, people did mourn the loss of the beloved West Side Pavilion Mall. But on childhood memories of going to, but, you know, this really is sort of the way of the future with these very important research fields. No one's shopping at balls as much anymore. Um, so there's a lot of excitement. And Newsom himself seemed really, really thrilled to have this located in Southern California, in LA. He said that the center will cement California's global economic, scientific, and technical dominance into the 22nd century and beyond, sort of referencing how the supercomputer aspect of the quantum science research hub will uh, help us in the fight against China to develop AI and better technology. So there's a whole lot of excitement around the potential in this building. Well, and presumably the potential for the UC to license some of that because uh, now universities with their research projects are often looking at revenue opportunities from them as well. So uh, undoubtedly that's that's part of the equation here for the University of, of California. When you were talking about residents bemoaning the closing of the West Side Pavilion, that's so true. I remember when it opened decades ago and there was so much concern about all the 
traffic and parking problems. And then, of course, um, there was much love for the West Side Pavilion during its boom years when it was a, a destination for so many people, particularly in their youth, to go there to enjoy the movie theater with all the screens and, and the luxury mall on the West Side. We're talking with Clara, uh, Clara Harder, who's reporter for the L.A. Daily News, covering UCLA's acquisition of the former West Side Pavilion to house scientific research. Uh, it'll be uh, a campus devoted to multiple areas of research, uh, immunotherapy, Uh, and immunology generally, as well as quantum science research on the facility at UCLA. I also saw there's some private money involved in this, Clara. Yes, there are a group of of billionaire philanthropists, uh, you might call them, who have committed their own sums. This includes huge names like uh, Michael Milken, Sean Parker, Mayor Luskin, um, who are, are very excited in the Center for Immunology um, and the potential that this research can really increase longevity and come up with a wide range of cures for different health conditions. You know, it's kind of piggybacking off of all that mRNA technology we saw during the pandemic that helped us get a vaccine very quickly. So this field is moving fast and uh, these philanthropists are, are happy to put their money behind it. Thank you so much, Clara, for talking with us about this major development, both educationally and in real estate for the west side of Los Angeles. We appreciate it. Thank you. Clara Harder for the L.A. Daily News, who's written about UCLA's acquisition through the UC Board of Regents of the former West Side Pavilion shopping mall to become the UCLA Research Campus. It's Air Talk on L.A. at 89.3. Coming up, we'll talk about a challenge being faced by truck drivers across the United States with the new rules for when they have to take their breaks to avoid fatigue driving. They're not finding places to be able to safely pull over. That's created some disastrous crashes. We'll talk about efforts in Congress to try and deal with it, but I'd like to hear from you. If you are a truck driver and you can firsthand share with us the challenges you face in finding a place to be able to pull over safely, give us a call. We're at 866-893-5722. That's 866-893-5722. Or you can email us at atcomments at las.com. Please include your location and your first name. We'll be back in just one minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, The Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. 
It's Air Talk on LA is 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. Coming up later this hour, long, long time NPR producer whose stories have appeared for decades on Morning Edition and All Things Considered and Weekend Edition Saturday and the like. We'll be joined by Peter Breslow. He recently retired and has written his memoir about his experience traveling the world for NPR and for a radio geek like myself. It's just a delightful read. Uh, And uh, his experiences, because he started his career in radio right around the time that I got started. So it was fun for me to read about some of the similar experiences, uh, cutting magnetic tape and editing it together and all the things that we had to do with the technology that was so much more primitive than what we deal with in broadcast journalism today. That's coming up later this hour. But right now we talk about the challenges faced by long-haul truckers and even by delivery drivers. They're, They're a little bit of a different challenge, but both of them have to do with a shortage of space, places where they're able to pull over safely out of the way of traffic for long-haul truckers. The problem is that there just is a, a poor ratio of available space to the number of drivers on the road. And for safety, they have to pull over and, and rest, sleep in their cabs, not being able to find places to do it. That's created some tragic collisions. And on the local side, we see deliveries with more and more people getting deliveries to their home, not just to businesses, uh, delivery trucks all over the places. People are trying to find a spot to be able to make the delivery. So I'd like to hear from you. If you're a professional driver who makes deliveries, either long haul, you drive a semi, and you're having that problem finding the place to be able to pull over to sleep. I'd like to hear about some of the ways that you try and game this, that you try and figure out where you're going to safely be able to park your rig. If you're a local delivery driver and you're in a particularly heavily impacted place where it's tough to find parking, what are the workarounds that you figure out? We're at 866 893 866-893-5722 or you can email us at atcomments at las.com I know we have so many professional drivers in our audience you listen as you do deliveries as you take your goods across the western U.S. so please share with us your experience about the challenge in finding places to park your vehicle 866-893-5722 with us from the New York Times Washington based investigative reporter Mark Walker, who's written about the safety challenges this presents in the long-haul trucking industry. Mark, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Share with us the the terrible incident that happened months ago involving the Greyhound bus and a parked big rig, which brought additional scrutiny to this issue. So in that case, uh, it's happened over the summer. You had a Greyhound bus that's on the way to St. Louis. The Greyhound bus is then pulling off to a rest stop to where it collided surprisingly with a semi-truck that was parked on the shoulder of the rest area. Uh, The crash tore apart the front part of the bus, killing three passengers on board. The incident, along with other similar incidents around the country, are being investigated by the NTSB to try to determine what sort of solution could be made to fix the issue of these 18-wheeled truckers being parked on the side of highways on on exit ramps across the country. 
And this because there simply aren't enough spaces in rest stops available or they hit the hours limit to what they can safely drive under federal law and, and there isn't a nearby rest stop to even get to? Exactly. There is designated parking, but there's not enough. So there's roughly one parking space for every 11 truckers on the road. And so ultimately you have a situation to where there's not enough parking spaces for all the truckers. And then they start to run out in hours. And so if you're a trucker and you're on the highway, you know, you have an hour left before you have to rest. You kind of make a decision to where you have to make your delivery on time. How far out are you? Should you just use your best option to keep going and just find a space somewhere on the highway? Do you spend the last hour of work looking for a parking lot at Walmart or trying to find an open space miles down the road? And so on off, you know, on occasions, uh, truck drivers spend about an hour each day looking for parking, which you know, ultimately wow. costs 12% of their salaries a year. So it's a real financial challenge for those truckers as well. Yeah, uh, safety and financial challenge. Uh, let's talk, Mark, about how the reporting process of driver hours has factored into this because used to be drivers, as you write, reported on a paper log, so it's a self-report of the hours that they're working. How has um, the electronic logging of this changed the process and, and made the drivers more vulnerable? So with the paper system, there was a little bit more flexibility for truckers to be able to look for parking, um, making sure that they, they log the hours they work, but gives them a little flexibility. With the electronic system, it's very automated. And so you see your hours on this dashboard ticking down. And you don't want to be in violation of the federal law. So on top of the financial burden of the money lost in wages, just looking for the parking. You don't want to be susceptible to a federal penalty for violating federal wage and hours laws. And so that electronic system is just so much more automated than the paper system. It puts them at an immediate risk of violating this federal law, which further increases the financial penalty against them. We're talking with New York Times reporter Mark Walker. He's an investigative journalist based in D.C. and talking with us about a piece he's reported on the safety challenges for long-haul truck drivers because of the lack of, of safe places for them to be able to park as they hit particularly their hours limit for what they are able to safely drive under federal law. And I'd love to hear from drivers to share your firsthand experience of how this affects your work. I've extended this to also talk about those that are doing local deliveries because perhaps not to the same degree of a safety challenge, which a driver of a semi experiences, it still is a huge challenge in an urban area like Southern California to be able to safely do those deliveries. Mark Walker with us, and in a few minutes, we'll be joined by the U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg, who'll be talking with us about what the federal government is intending to do. But let's take a call from Ryan. Ryan in Rancho Cucamonga. Good to have you with us, Ryan. I understand you do uh, both delivery drives uh, and that you also drive semis. What are your experiences with parking? Uh, parking is uh, pretty bad, especially in L.A. Um, if you want to park and sleep, usually you have to go to uh, places like Pilot or um, Flying Shade. Those are the truck stops. Um, you got to get there early because parking gets really taken pretty quick. Um, but the closer you get into L.A. or Orange County, the less of those truck stops you have. Because uh, we're talking big areas because they're big trucks. 
stuff like that. Going into L.A. is uh, bad, especially when the streets are small or one-way. And uh, sometimes you have to uh, deliver into areas that are super compact. Um, I'm talking about, it's, it's called alley docking when you're in a truck and you have to back up to a door. And uh, you have to come up off the street in some traffic. They don't, they don't stop. They, don't, they go around you. They're honking. Nobody is paying attention. And uh, sometimes they want you to go into these real small uh, door areas where there's trucks are sold together that if you're not paying attention, you can be out. That's truck right next to me. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah. You know, he, um, you can literally take out, uh, literally take out somebody's door, literally take out a mirror. Um, it's it's bad, especially when you're that close together. And um, uh, Ryan, let me let me just ask you: when you're going to do a delivery at a place like that, how much advance? Um, intelligence do you get on this? Do you, you know, or do you have a sense of what you're going to have to be pulling into or is much of this just discovering it in the, in the moment of arrival? Yeah. I mean, most of the time, I'd probably say nine and a half, maybe close to 10 times out of 10, you don't get no intelligence about where you're going. The owners of the company or the people that dispatch you, they have no clue. Um, where you're going. Well, they don't care because they're not the ones that have to go there and perform the parking, perform the, the door openings, uh, the delivery and all that stuff. They just give you the address of where they're going. Or maybe maybe they do give you a little heads up, um, but it's not very often. Um, I found out that through Google Maps, you can look and um, you could check uh, positions of trucks. Google Maps, is, uh, especially the, the one that shows you the the picture of the you know the, the street view, picture. yeah, yeah, that helps. I'm sh- I'm sure. Those are very, very invaluable because that's something you couldn't find off the end. I'm I'm old enough to remember the old uh, Thomas guy. Yeah, right. Thomas guy back in the day. Yeah, you know. I bet that was your Bible back in the day, as it was even for us at that, amateur drivers. That, that was the Bible of every trucker. The yeah. Thomas guy. The the is it called the van? The Rand McNeil, I, I can't remember the name of the other map. Yeah, Rand McNally, the Atlas, which was yeah. also, yeah, for states, gave uh, tremendous detail. Hey, Ryan, I'm, I'm going to let you go, but thank you so much for sharing your experience and how difficult it is, and particularly to find those truck stops, um, you know, places uh, that, are, that are in urban areas where land is so expensive, you're not going to see a Petro. Uh, you're not going to see a Flying J. You're not going to see those, those truck stops just because there isn't the land of available to build those until you get on the outskirts of Los Angeles. Um, Mark Walker, New York Times reporter, is with us. We just heard Ryan talking about the challenge. And um, are, are, is, is there anything contemplated by Congress to respond to this? You know, um, one of the things that's being contemplated is Representative Mike Bost. He has a bill that would significantly fund the federal government to build more truck parking. He previously pushed this effort in 2021 as part of the highway bill to try and get a billion dollars to expand truck parking across the country. He is obviously the, he's the biggest sort of advocate in, on the Hill for this truck parking issue. All right. Uh, let's take another listener call from Juan in Torrance. Good to have you with us. 
This is a Warren. Oh, Warren, I'm sorry. Pardon me. Go ahead. All right. Uh, yeah, I do delivery driving. I deliver packages, food, um, groceries. And and the biggest challenge in downtown L.A. is when you're picking up or dropping off, it's never going to take you long. My car is marked so people know that I'm a delivery driver. If I have to, I'll park in the red zone, get in, get out. I think that the city of L.A. should make exception for delivery drivers because we're never there for long. I've had police, uh, I mean, parking people who seem to be angry at life, give me tickets. <laughs> and sometimes uh, when I'm on narrow streets, this is the most dangerous part, having to deliver on these narrow streets, nowhere to park. I find it best to back into people's uh, driveway where I'm making the delivery. Mm-hmm. Because you never want to pull back out. Yeah. But to back into that driveway, make that delivery and get out. Sometimes I, if I can't find parking, I'll drive around until I can. As long as it doesn't take too long, I'll ask the person to come down and get their, their packages, their delivery, whatever it is. And sometimes people just refuse. They, they won't, no matter how hard it is. And in that case, you, you have to, you may have to cancel that order and, Give that to some homeless person who needs it. So, Juan, let me let me go back to ask you about the parking because uh, we've had a listener call and said, you know, that he thinks that um, delivery trucks should be cited for parking in red spaces, just like you're describing. You know, it's the yellow loading zone that's supposed to be for deliveries, but of course, there are never enough of those, uh, even in commercial areas, for all the deliveries that are taking place. So what, for you, would make this easier to be able to safely make deliveries? Well, the problem with delivery trucks, as opposed to delivery people like me, is that a delivery truck may be there for hours. You know, they could take up that space for a long time. And I'll come in, i got to get in and out, and I can't get there because a delivery truck has been there all day. Yeah, okay. Again, some exceptions need to be made for delivery trucks and cars and drivers, because we are helping the quality of life in the city. Well, and Warren, you know, there's there's so many more people doing the work that you're doing now as more and more is ordered to come to the home. So there are many more people who are professional drivers doing deliveries, just like yourself. And we haven't made the accommodation for how people can do that. Warren, thank you so much. I appreciate it very much. I think about all the areas in Southern California that are full of apartment buildings and street parking is already heavily impacted. And then you see someone coming trying to, you know, make uh, an Amazon delivery or UPS delivery or a DoorDash delivery, what have you. And there's just no place for the person, either with a personal vehicle or a delivery van, to be able to to make that delivery. We're talking with Mark Walker, investigative reporter for The New York Times. He's based in D.C., who's written about the challenge that long-haul truckers are facing in being able to find spaces to safely park their rigs. We've had some uh, terrible experiences experiences where 
Rigs have hit each other where they've been parked on the side of the road but not seen. We had back in the summer in July the Greyhound bus heading to St. Louis that turned onto an exit ramp in uh, southern Illinois, ended up hitting uh, uh, three park tractor trailers, and uh, it was a deadly crash. Three of the passengers on the Greyhound bus were killed in that incident. Also joining us now is the U.S. Secretary of Transportation, Pete Buttigieg. Secretary, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. Good to be with you. Thanks for having me on. So we're talking about Mark Walker's investigative piece in the New York Times. And what is your department looking at to try and provide more safe parking spaces for long haul drivers? Well, this is clearly a big issue. Every time I talk to drivers, it comes up. It's an issue for their job quality, for their quality of life, for safety, uh, and also for our supply chains more generally, making sure that uh, uh, every part of our supply chains works well. And obviously, uh, trucks and truck drivers are an important part of that. So we're working to make sure that we put uh, the funding that became available in President Biden's infrastructure bill to work on helping to solve this problem. Uh, We've put out grants in South Dakota, Wyoming, Texas, Louisiana, just to take a few examples. Uh, First of all, just to literally add more parking spaces, but we're also working with the states to make sure there's better technology to better use the spaces we have. Since we know that parking spaces are scarce, uh, helping truck drivers get an advanced read on when and where spaces are going to be available is a good way to optimize the spaces we do have while we're trying to add to that number through the more uh, physical construction that we're funding around the country. We uh, we have, for example, in some of the newer parking structures at shopping malls, you can go and see what's available on each floor of the structure so you don't waste your time going around. And, and it, w- it would seem helpful for drivers to have some sort of electronic communication to similarly know what's available and how far away it is. Exactly. Picture a driver who's maybe an hour and a half away from hitting their limit, uh, their fatigue limit. They know they're going to have to stop relatively soon. They need to weigh whether to pull off uh, on a certain exit where there's potentially uh, spaces, but uh, it would take a little time to get there and see for themselves or press on uh, a little bit further in hopes of finding more spaces further out. Obviously, that's a scenario where it would make a big difference to be able to get an accurate picture of how many parking spaces are available in different spots along your route. Uh, it's uh, something that that is relatively new, even though it's, it's routine to see this in, in parking garages, like you mentioned, you don't see as much of this uh, out on the routes that these long haul truck drivers depend on. But obviously, uh, it's it's something that would go a long way. But again, I want to emphasize, in addition to that kind of information, we just plain need more parking spaces for trucks. And so uh, we've been funding that with our grants. And another thing we're doing is really uh, reminding the states that this already counts as an eligible way to use the formula dollars that come to them for highway construction and improvements. Uh, sometimes that, that hasn't been as big on their radar. And so we're trying to channel what we're hearing from the drivers and remind them, uh, hey, this is is something that belongs in your program as you're deciding how to use the next couple of years worth of funding that's coming your way from Washington. Well, I'm, I'm thinking about an urban area like greater Los Angeles, where to come through in a big rig, if you've got a SIG alert on one of the freeways, can back you up for hours. And if you're coming up on your, your time limit behind the wheel, there's there's not a, a public um, rest stop that you can use until you get to the outskirts of L.A. There There is 
isn't uh, a commercially operated truck stop available to you, again, with the cost of real estate here until you get to the outskirts. Is there anything that can be done for truckers who get stuck in central L.A., Orange County and, and can't get to a place to park their truck in time? Yeah, I think the best thing really is to keep them out of that scenario in the first place. That's where the the added spaces and the better technology, I think, will kick in. And the example you're raising is a, a, a great reminder of one more dimension of why this matters, which is the effect it can have on communities and neighborhoods uh, that, that find that uh, they have trucks in places that weren't designed to accommodate trucks. Uh, not uh, for any reason you could blame the driver for, but because the driver didn't have any choice but to turn into these neighborhoods and uh, sometimes wound up effectively stuck there. I want to thank you very much, Secretary Pete Buttigieg, U.S. Uh, Department of Transportation, for joining us today and talking about the challenge that America's truckers face. We appreciate it very much. Thanks for having me. Also, my thanks to Mark Walker, investigative reporter for The New York Times. He's based in D.C., and you can read his piece at The New York Times, in which he describes some truly terrible incidents that have occurred as trucks were portaled off to the side of the highway or on exit or entrance ramps only to be plowed into by other vehicles. This is what the hope is to avoid by having designated safe parking spaces for America's truckers. Coming up, we talk with recently retired longtime NPR producer Peter Breslow. His new memoir, Outtakes, describes his life as he puts it stumbling around the world for NPR from the top of Everest to Antarctica, uh, having uh, rattlesnake venom uh, spit out onto his microphone, some wild experiences with warlords and the like. We'll talk with him about uh, what NPR was like when he joined and what the organization became over his four decades. It's Air Talk on L.A. is 89.3, back in 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Hair Talk on L.A.S. 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. You might have seen some beautifully written obituaries for the great jazz musician Les McCann, keyboardist, singer, who uh, died over the holidays at the age of 88. I found out that the last interview that Les McCann did was with us on Air Talk. I had the 
pleasure of talking with him at the assisted living uh, facility he lived at in Van Nuys. And we talked with him about his long career uh, and uh, him being a pioneer of soul jazz. That interview is available at LAS.com in our AirTalk archives. If you'd like to hear that conversation that aired, I believe it was back in uh, October that we had him on uh, and played some of his music, some of his uh, big hits like Compared to What, Les McCann, who left us at the age of 88. We turn our attention now on Air Talk to NPR's Peter Breslow, recently retired producer whose work showed up on NPR's signature news magazine's Morning Edition and All Things Considered, as well as their weekend counterparts. Peter, with a remarkable career at NPR, which uh, the years of which very similar to my career, I first walked in the door at what was then called KPCC, the very end of 1979 as the holiday season approached. I'm still here. Peter similarly started early 1980s at NPR when the network had been around for a decade but was really nothing like what it's become. And he's written his memoir, Outtakes, Stumbling Around the World for NPR. Peter Breslow, so good to have you with us today on Air Talk. Hey. Thanks, Larry. Great to be here. I have to say, just personally, it was so much fun reading about what you did when you started at NPR, because for those of us of that era, it's so familiar. Yeah, it was it was a different time, right? You know, uh, we're cutting uh, interviews with uh, single-edge razor blades and magnetic tape and gashing our fingers and sprinting into the studio with uh, tails of tape behind us. And the pride we took in our ability to edit seamlessly. The other thing is the cloud of cigarette smoke. You know, for years, I just <laughs> I worked in a cloud of cigarette smoke. And I think it's hard for... For young people to even imagine, how did a person tolerate that? But, you know, that's just what we knew. Yeah, I mean, I would be in an edit booth with the door closed, with Susan Stamberg puffing away, listening to tape and deciding, you know, what what cuts we were going to keep. Um, and uh, I survived, and uh, Susan eventually quit smoking. <laughs> <laughs> Peter, let's let's talk about your role as a producer. Um, for those who aren't familiar with what's entailed in that, describe the kinds of, of work that you did working with um, the host or reporter that you teamed up with on these many, many stories. Yeah, well, you know, there's all sorts of producers, and I was really lucky uh, early on to get into the... Uh, kind of the most exciting track, which for me was uh, a lot of foreign assignments. But, you know, I, I I got to, and being a producer, I didn't have a beat really. So, but I, and I was also super lucky to get to work with so many talented people. You know, I never went to journalism school. I mean, I studied English in college. I, I really, uh, you know, it's amazing that they ever hired me. But uh, I did get sort of this grad school at NPR working with Susan and uh, Scott, Simon and, you know, John Burnett and I, we've been all over the world. Scott and I did I don't know, three wars together. Um, and, um, you know, as a producer, you are basically a reporter. You're finding the story. You're deciding who's going to be interviewed. And then you start to structure the story in tandem with the reporter or host. And, um, you know, hosts are always super busy. So you're really having to, you know, carry the brunt and, and then present them with something that they can shape into their own style. 
I loved your your accounts of particularly early on as you're as you're learning the business, uh, having developed that sense of time in your head to where you really know what the deadline is, and that takes time time to form. You had some hair raising experiences as many of us do when we're we're starting out in this business. But Peter, I, I wanted to ask you about your your beginning at NPR because you said you had no journalism degree, you'd lived abroad for a while after graduating college before, you know, walking in sort of unsolicited to, to NPR. That can never happen now, as you write. It can't even happen typically at local stations. And people who have journalism degrees are typically prioritized for jobs anywhere uh, dealing with, with the news side of, of public broadcasting. And I wonder your thoughts about that, because to me, that means that potentially we miss out on people like you and I were who don't have journalism degrees. Um. Yeah, you know, I guess I'd have to say the people who show up now are just so bright and sharp and, you know, with a, a lot of uh, um, a lot of chops. Um, but maybe they don't kind of have the the out in the world experience that I had when I showed up. And I, I mean, that was the nice thing about NPR back then. It, it was really um, open-ended and open-armed uh, for all sorts of people. Um, and it was, um, as I said, you know, it, it was kind of my grad school. And now, you know, I mean, they wouldn't have let me out of the elevator if I showed up uh, today at NPR. And the, the people who come now, as you say, you know, have graduate degrees. So I guess, you know, maybe there's some, you know, positive on one end and negative on the other of of just, I, I was very lucky. My sort of street experience was in South America, and I learned some languages down there, Spanish and Portuguese. And so lucky that when I started, that really was one of the big stories in the world was uh, the revolutions in Central America and uh, the falling dictatorships in South America. And so it got me into that world. Um, and, you know, I, I kind of wrote on the coattails of, of people who were really equipped. And today uh, people are coming in and uh, they, I think they understand the principles of journalism. They just need to get the opportunity to be out in the field. Journalism isn't the only profession where the professionalizing of it has changed. We see this in film as well, where you know so many of, of our great directors and filmmakers historically uh, didn't come out of film school, but had lived full lives before they ever arrived in Hollywood. Now it's much mm -hmm. more common for the film director to come with that graduate film school education. And again, so they, they're not having to learn perhaps as much on the job, but they don't quite come with the same real-world experience. We're joined by Peter Breslow. Outtake, Stumbling Around the World for NPR, is his memoir and so many wonderful experiences he had with, with the real class of NPR's on-air personalities as well as his co-workers, uh, producers, uh, technical people, uh, the experts, 
expertise of NPR, of course, is so great, and he's worked alongside a tremendously talented group of people at NPR in Washington. If you have questions for him, we're at 866-893-5722, 866-893-5722, or you can email a question to Peter, particularly about the early years of NPR or some of the challenges as journalism has shifted, the kinds of pressures that we get from listeners that perhaps we didn't have before, particularly as the profile of NPR and public broadcasting has grown and as we live in an increasingly polarized world. 866-893-5722. We'll be back in a minute. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us with longtime NPR News producer Peter Breslow. His new memoir is titled Outtakes. Peter, how has retirement been? Uh, it's been great. Um, I'm really riding my bike a lot. As a matter of fact, I just got a new bike. Um, and I'm not really totally retired. I, um, I teach audio journalism. So uh, actually, I've been doing it. I was doing it even when I was uh, working at NPR. I, I teach at uh, Colorado College, super intensive course. And then I just started more recently teaching at a tiny school up in Bar Harbor, Maine, uh, College of the Atlantic. And um, it's, uh, you know, so far I haven't been bored. And <laughs> I do kind of miss the gigs, you know, I, I, I do kind of miss going out in the field and that camaraderie and that excitement, you know, when you hit the ground running and you don't know exactly what you're going to do and you got to find a fixer and you got to figure out what the story is and what your logistics are going to be. You know, that's that, that I don't know if that feeling will ever go away. I mean, it's just it's just embedded in my bones. Well, and let's go bit, take one of your chapters devoted to your return to Afghanistan with then Morning Edition host Renee Montaigne. So you, you go back in 2014, I believe it was. Share with us why that was a particularly challenging assignment. So, um, so 2014, they were having presidential elections, and and that was our reason to go. And Renee is, you know, uh, I think it was her tenth visit to Afghanistan, that country she just fell in love with early on. That at that point was my second visit. Um, it was a little bit hairy. Um, there were. Uh, a number of journalists had actually been uh, killed uh, uh, just prior to us arriving or even while we were there. So we had to be a little bit careful. Um, and uh, and we were a little bit nervous going out reporting on Election Day. But, you know, we had great fixtures with us. And those are the people that keep you safe, right? They tell you what road you can go down that might be safe. Um, and, you know, when it's time to leave a spot because word is out that there are Americans around. So um, it was a bit challenging, but it was a great, fantastic trip. I mean, we traveled to Bamiyan, where I had first been with Scott Simon in, uh, in 2002. Um, we went to a rally there. We were down in Kandahar for another presidential rally. Um, we, we traveled all around the country. And uh, for me, the uh, one of the highlights, when I'm on these assignments, I usually try to find a story that's um, just a little bit of, of 
me hopeful. And I did a story on that trip about the Afghan women's cycling team. And I went out with them uh, while they were training. And it was just such a inspirational um, uh, moment. These women were just so tough. You know, they, they had been assaulted. People in vehicles didn't want them out on the road training and their tights and stuff, although they were very modestly dressed for bikers. Um, and, uh, you know, it was, they, they were very excited. And now, of course, uh, since the return of the Taliban, that uh, that's all over. A lot of them uh, fled, fled the country. We're talking with Peter Breslow, outtake, stumbling around the world for NPR, his her dec- his decades-long career, working with so many terrific NPR personalities, including Scott Simon, host of Weekend Edition Saturday, 25 years. The two of them collaborated, three wars that they covered together. What is it like when you have that kind of, of long-term experience working with someone under, you know, quite intense pressure and and deadlines that you have to deal with well you know you you know the rhythm of the person you're working with right and scott and i have been joined at the hip forever john burnett is another person who you know we 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 just we just know who's going to do what and when and scott i mean he you know he is such a brilliant writer that um I, i knew i could give him something that was maybe not fully formed and he would pull it off. And, you know, he's he's someone you, you're working hard. And uh, when it's over, you know, maybe when you filed, you want to relax and joke around. And, and Scott was very good for that. Um, you know, those situations where he, he he could just I can't tell you how many times I've been with him and somebody would and he'd, we'd be having a, uh, an interview and the person would go, you know what? No one's ever asked me that question before. He would just come up with the one thing that kind of made the the moment special. And I remember that trip to Bamiyan in 2002. And um, we we got to town and uh, we had heard about these guys who were digging up graves of people who had been executed by the Taliban in order to give them a proper burial. And the light was fading. It was freezing cold. We were probably at 9,000 feet and we get there and there. It was just an astounding moment. And, you know, as a producer, it's like, oh my God, we've got a great opening to our story about Bamiyan, these guys digging up the graves. And I just remember Scott's writing was just so amazing. He, he, describing a little piece of the backbone of, of one of the people that had been on earth as looking like it was a, a part of a seahorse. And that that's so stuck with me. So, you know, you, you want someone who has your back. You, you, you want someone who is quick and, uh, and efficient. And, um, you know, I, 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 as I said, I just was so, I've been so lucky over the years to work with these folks who are just masters. And I, I can't tell you how many, I mean, I just learned something every time up until probably the last gig I ever went on with <laughs> Lulu Garcia Navarro. I'm, oh, I was always learning something. We're talking with Peter Breslow, longtime NPR producer. Uh, wanted to ask you about being a behind-the-scenes producer. Here, your work is so vital to what listeners hear, and yet it's the host or the reporter's name that people become familiar with. Uh, did you have to become okay with that, or was that okay with you from the beginning? <laughs> 
I'm still not okay with it. No, uh, you know, you know, my mother would tune in every week at the end of weekend edition so she could hear her son's name on the air, and then they eliminated credits, and my name wasn't on the air anymore. So, um, but you, you know, it is. Yeah, I have a big enough ego that you know, I, I would miss. I would always try to do my own stories here and there, so I I could get out there. But there, you know, I do feel that as a producer, I got to do way more and go to so far flung places that I never would have gotten had I just been a reporter. So, but it is a little bit of ego suppression, I have to say. Well, and to see how NPR has changed over the many decades, I highly recommend Peter Beslow's book, Outtakes, because he does a beautiful job of describing what NPR was like from the very beginning, you know, much smaller staff. Um, they're, they're really inventing as they go the form of journalism that we now think of as NPR style and, of course, a mainstream, internationally recognized news organization now. Peter, was not that way uh, when you started, and you've seen this transformation. That's got to be very gratifying. Yeah, you know, you would call people up, and they'd go, what? NPR, what? National, what? And I remember the catchphrase was, it's kind of like the BBC for the U.S. Yeah. Um, and now, you know, you call people up, and it's, oh, God, NPR, I love you guys. Uh, so, you know, we've become much more of a legitimate news operation, of course, ever since the first Gulf War, really. But with that comes, you know, a little bit of pressure, maybe to be a little less out there than we were when I first started. So, so um, true. A little bit more straight-laced. Peter, thank you for being with us. Congratulations on your sterling career at NPR and your memoir, Outtakes. We appreciate it. Thanks so much. This was fun, Larry. I appreciate it. Peter Breslow with us on Air Talk. Much more to come in the second hour. Be back with you. Tell you about it in a minute. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center presenting American Mariachi by Jose Cruz Gonzalez. It's the 1970s and women can't be mariachis, or can they? American Mariachi is a feel-good comedy about familia, amor, and tradición that will send your heart soaring and put a bounce in your step with a wave of vibrant, infectious live music. On stage through June 9th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. Good morning. It's Air Talk. I'm Larry Mantle. Great to have you with us. Reminder, tomorrow at 10 o'clock, it's Film Week. I'll be joined by critics Wade Major and Andy Klein. We'll be talking with them about the Netflix romantic comedy Good Grief, starring Daniel Levy, who also wrote and directed the film Occupied City. 
is a documentary uh, that's directed by Steve McQueen, who's known for his narrative films like 12 Years a Slave. We'll hear his film, which takes a look at Amsterdam during World War II. And The Goldfinger, an action crime film starring Tony Lung Chihuahua and uh, written and directed by Felix Chong. That's all coming up on Film Week tomorrow at 10 o'clock right here on LAS 89.3. We begin this hour with a look at the remarkable rescue of all passengers and crew aboard JAL Flight 516, which on Tuesday struck a Japanese Coast Guard plane, which was on the same runway uh, where the commercial jet was coming down. Remarkably, all the passengers and the crew members got off that Airbus 350 jet. Sadly, the five um, crew members on the Coast Guard uh, plane were killed. Uh, the uh, pilot of that jet uh, was able to escape but suffered significant injuries. The question is, how did all of those people on the Airbus jet end up getting safely evacuated because the flame the flames were starting even as the passengers were still buckled into their seats so they had limited time to get out joining us is director of the fire safety engineering group at the University of Greenwich in the UK Ed Gallia he specializes in fire safety and engineering thank you so much Ed for being with us um, first of all um, these passengers had, what, about 18 minutes to get off of that plane. How difficult a task is it keeping people calm and getting them to where they need to be to slide off of the jet? Well, um, in any emergency evacuation situation, it's always a challenge. It's a challenge for the people um, trying to evacuate. It's a challenge for the people that are managing uh, the evacuation. And this particular accident uh, was no exception. It was an extremely challenging uh, evacuation situation. Um, the plane was um, nose down, so the front gear had collapsed. So the plane is on an angle. Um, the, there's an external fire. There's smoke coming into the cabin. Uh, the plane is full of occupants. Uh, so it's a real challenge. Uh, and in, in many situations, um, you know, we would uh, expect... Uh, that under these conditions that uh, the evacuation mightn't be as as successful as as this one was. We heard from passengers that people stayed quite calm. There were a few people yelling. There were some children that were crying. But the people generally stayed calm. And what are the things that uh, the air professionals, the flight crew and the like, are trained to do to try and keep people level-headed even in in a circumstance like this where um, the adrenaline rush is huge and people are terrified that they're going to die? Well, all the, the cabin crew are trained safety professionals. They're trained to manage an evacuation situation. Uh, in fact, the whole purpose for the cabin crew being on the aircraft in the first place is not to serve you drinks and a meal. It's to manage an evacuation. So they're highly trained uh, and they're very authoritative when it comes to an, an emergency situation. So uh, to, to maintain calm, they've got to be seen to be in control and in command. Uh, and, and they certainly were in this particular situation. Um, I, I think the one of the advantages um, in the Japanese uh, situation here at, at uh, Hanada Airport 
uh, is that the um, uh, the Japanese people themselves are used to emergency situations. They're trained uh, in how to manage and evacuate in earthquake situations, for example. Uh, and so it's ingrained in them to, uh, to how to respond to an emergency situation. And I'm sure that had a, that had a part to play in, in, in the fact that people remained uh, quite calm and were prepared to take the instructions of the authority figures, i.e. The, the cabin crew on board. That's interesting. You raised the familiarity with emergency procedures. I I hadn't thought of that, though. It makes perfect sense with how earthquake-prone and tsunami-prone Japan is. I was thinking, though, about possible cultural differences that um, in a country like the United States, there may just be more emoting, more more visible emotions, people perhaps not as as uh, in control of, of their outward expressions, more prone to panic. Do you think there are cultural differences that come into play as well? Well, well culture is a very interesting topic. Social culture is a very interesting topic when it comes to emergency evacuation situations. Uh, and the research community is kind of split. Some say that it makes a big difference and some say it doesn't. Uh, I've been doing research into this for uh, at least 20 years, the impact of culture, social culture. And I think with the Japanese uh, uh, society, it's very hierarchical. And, uh, and, and there, is a, there is a respect of authority figures. And I think that came into play in the evacuation of the A350 at Hanada. When the cabin crew are yelling out orders, um, the passengers are, are more likely to be compliant. Uh, whereas if this had happened with, say, a fully Western uh, passenger complement, say this happened in the United States or it happened in Great Britain or somewhere in Europe, uh, you don't have that respect of authority figures to the same extent. Uh, people want to do their own thing and people think they know better. Uh, and so the outcome might not have been uh, as good. For example, um, all cabin crew at the start of any evacuation, irrespective of what country you're in or what airline it is, the first commands are leave your luggage because passengers tend to want to take their luggage. And we've seen this time and time again uh, in in emergency evacuation situations in in the States and in Europe and in the UK where passengers tend to want to take their luggage. Now, this is really dangerous. In the Hanada accident, the cabin crew yelled out instructions, leave your baggage, leave your baggage. And the passengers complied with that. Uh, on the whole, uh, the passengers didn't take their bags um, with them off the aircraft. Now, I don't know if everyone complied with that, but certainly all the video footage I've seen of the passengers that have come off the aircraft that I can see, none of them have got big roller bags. None of them have got big rucksacks. Uh, so it looks to me that on the whole, the passengers complied with that very, very important instruction because taking the baggage uh, during an evacuation can have very, very serious ramifications. It can delay the evacuation and delay people getting off the aircraft. Well, and I would think luggage has the potential to clog up the escape. I mean, there are all kinds of not just time issues, but um, uh, ingress, egress issues as well when you've got luggage. We're talking with Ed Gallia, director of the Fire Safety Engineering Group at the University of Greenwich in the UK. He specializes in fire safety and engineering, and he analyzes evacuations. That's what we're asking him to do, because thankfully, in the case of the JAL Flight 516 collision on Tuesday, that runway at Haneda Airport, 
all 379 passengers and crew on that Airbus jet were successfully able to get off. There were not serious injuries. It it worked. Tragically for the Coast Guard jet that was struck as it was on the runway at the same time, five of the crew members were killed. The pilot was able to escape with injuries. Also joining us, uh, someone who has uh, central responsibility for evacuating a jet should there be an emergency when she's uh, part of the cabin crew. Uh, Laura Ketterman, a 30 year flight attendant, co-host of Non-Rev Lounge, an airline employee, travel and aviation podcast. She works for a major American airline that we do not want to mention the name of, but it's it's one of the big carriers that carries people internationally. Laura, thank you very much for being with us. Thank you, Larry. Uh, let's start, first of all, with the training that you've undergone throughout your career. You've been doing this for three decades. Has that training for evacuation appreciably changed over the years? It has evolved with the situations that uh, that happen. With each, every year we do a recurrent training session. It's mandatory. It's re- We're required to, re- to attend it. It's two days, and we go over situations on actual aircraft and we we open doors in emergency modes and we practice situations and share with us your thoughts about what you saw with the Haneda airport incident of a couple days ago uh from what you've been able to see were were you impressed with what happened there oh i was so impressed what what a wonderful evacuation it was a textbook evacuation other than what happened with the coast guard um gentlemen that was uh very unfortunate, but what an amazing event to have 300 plus people evacuate safely and with very little uh, injuries. In your career, have you had to conduct a full evacuation of a jet like that? No, I have not. I've been fortunate. I haven't even had the uh, oxygen masks fall, but I have also worked flights to Japan, and there is a big cultural difference between uh, Japanese passengers and the Western passengers. You anticipated my next question. I was going to ask, because you do fly internationally, um, is it your sense that if you had a plane full of Americans, they would likely respond differently than these Japanese passengers did? Well, one would think so. When you look at the pictures of Miracle on the Hudson and you see everyone standing out on the wings uh, in the in the river, you'll see luggage out there on the wings. And we didn't see any luggage at all with the Japan Airlines evacuation. So that tells you right there that um, when members of Sully's crew told people to leave their luggage, some of them didn't. Correct. Well, and we are trained to give clear and concise commands during those uh, situations. We are not making up what to say. We have already been, we have learned these commands and we review them every year. What sort of training do you get to keep your cool, to not panic yourself in an emergency incident, you know, particularly if if flames are starting, you can smell it, as was the case here. People knew that that there was a chance they could be killed by the fire. How do you keep calm? I think it's the routine that keeps you calm. It's the fact that I have practiced it every single year for the last 30 years. I know what to do in that situation. I think it's the routine, and I start with the very first step and work my way through the steps that we have learned and practiced. Aside from people leaving their luggage, if they're told to evacuate a jet, what other advice do you have for us to make the experience safer should an emergency occur? 
single-handedly wear closed toed shoes, wear those sneakers. Um, don't take them off during the flight. Keep them on your feet. You never know when something's going to happen. It's best to have those shoes on. Look at that, what happened in that with that aircraft. There's metal everywhere that could slice your feet. There's fire burning. If they had their shoes on, they have much better chance of getting off that aircraft quickly. All right. And also, I assume knowing all the exits, because if there's damage to one part of the jet or a fire, one, you've got to know where the other exits are. Pay attention during that safety demonstration. Take off those headphones and pay attention. Look and see where your primary exit would be. To look around, see where your secondary exit would be. Just take a moment. It just takes a second during that demonstration. We'll remind you to take a look. Just take a look. We're talking with Laura Ketterman, 30-year flight attendant, co-host of Non-Rev Lounge, an airline employee travel and aviation podcast. She's been flying for one of the major carriers, travels internationally, been doing it for years. Also with us, Ed Gallia of the University of Greenwich. He's an expert on fire safety engineering, and he analyzes evacuations. Ed, the evacuation here, though thankfully everybody was safe, did it start a little later than it should have? Yeah, look, the, the evacuation started later than I think it should have. When I when I was watching this unfold on the TV, I, I couldn't believe how long it took to, to, to start the evacuation. I'm wondering what the heck are they doing? Um, and my understanding is that there was some uh, uh, poor communication or lack of communication between the flight deck and the cabin crew. Usually the captain uh, gives the command to start the evacuation and the cabin crew were then... Uh, spring into action. But when uh, the cabin crew are also trained to instigate the evacuation if communication with the flight deck is lost. Uh, and I think in this situation, the, the, there was a problem with the communications. Uh, given that the plane had come down on its nose um, and all the avionics are in the front part under the, um, under the cockpit, um, it's quite possible that the communications um, between the flight deck and the uh, cabin crew was lost. We know that the cabin communication from the cabin crew to the passengers over the PA system had failed. And so it was quite possible that the communications with the um, uh, crew also failed. And that probably delayed the start of the evacuation a, 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 a little bit. And then uh, the cabin crew would spring into action. And they're trained to uh, look out the, um, the windows and the door to make sure that um, uh, there's no danger outside, a fire or, so, or something else outside. And then if it's safe, uh, the cabin crew can, can instigate the start of the evacuation. And I think that's actually what happened in this particular incident. Uh, and um, the cabin crew had to make really life and death decisions. You know, do I open this exit or don't I? And um, it appears that the, um, so the, the A350 has four pairs of exits. It's got two in the front. It's got two in front of the wing. It's got two just behind the wing. And then it's got two in the rear of the aircraft. So it's got eight exits in total, four pairs. And it looks like uh, what happened was that the, the number four left exit was opened by the crew member there. And then the number one left and number one right exit was open. So there were three exits in total opened uh, and uh, the slides were deployed and those crew worked really hard to get those passengers out. Now, I, I should also say, because the plane was not on its gear, it was nose down, those slides at the front exits weren't deployed 
as they are intended to be deployed. They were at a very, very shallow angle mm. because the nose was on the ground. Yeah. Now that means the evacuation through that those eggs are going to be very, very slow. And, and the passengers are, aren't going to be sliding away. They kind of jump onto the slide and they kind of start Stop. to have to walk yeah. up. Well, and, and also, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. That makes that evacuation very, very slow from the front. And then at the back, uh, because the tail is up, uh, that slide is really, really steep. Uh, and I was really worried when I saw that because I thought, my goodness, passengers are going to really injure themselves going down that slide. And when you see the video of them going out, they're coming out at a tremendous rate. And you, you see them falling off the slide at the bottom. And you think, oh, my God, they're going to break their neck or break their arm or break their leg. But they all got up. They managed that. And they, and they, and they, and they managed to walk away. So it was really an incredible Whoa. situation. I've Only got sweaty exits. palms hearing about this, Ed. Wow. Yeah, I mean, it was it was quite. I mean, I just couldn't believe it. It was like only three exits available. None of the slides had deployed in an optimal way, and yet those cabin crew worked so hard to get those passengers out. And in fact, one of the videos you can see at the crew member at the number four left exit. I don't know if it was a man or a woman, but that cabin crew member deserves a medal. You can see them in the dark, in the smoke. The cabin crew member's got a. a uh, a torch, I think you call it a flashlight in the States, yeah. in her hand or his hand, he or she's waving it around, urging the passengers to come back and getting them down that slide at the number four exit. Uh, you know, and the plane's on fire, it's filling with smoke, and that crew member did their job perfectly. Ed, I've got to wrap, but just real quickly, did they not deploy the slides uh, at um, uh, fore and aft of the wings? You think because there were concerns about the engines being on fire? Yes. That, that could be? Okay. Yeah. I was curious about that. All right. Thank you so much, Ed Gallia, Director of the Fire Safety Engineering Group, University of Greenwich in the UK. And our thanks to Laura Ketterman, 30-year flight attendant with a major carrier and co-host of Non-Rev Lounge, an airline employee travel and aviation podcast. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. Coming up, why so many Americans are canceling streaming services. Folks thought it was going to be a lower cost alternative to the cable bundle. It's not quite working out that way. If you end up subscribing to multiple streamers, we'll talk about how the streaming companies are trying to respond to the churn of customers when we come back in just one minute. It's Air Talk on LAist 89.3. I'm Larry Mantle. Wonderful to have you with us. And I want to take a moment to thank our wonderful production crew on Air Talk, the best in the business, led by Matt D'Angelantonio, our senior producer, our gifted production staff, whose producers Lindsay Wright. Lucy Kopp, Manny Valladares, and Michael Goldsmith. Our apprentice news clerks are Tamar Fagan and Jason Rodriguez. Our technical director who engineers everything that you hear is Evelyn Bocanegra. Such a great team on Air Talk, and I, I deeply appreciate them. Plus, they're a blast to work with. They are, they are just such 
pros, and our sense of responsibility to each other is is very high. I, I feel very, very fortunate. We continue on air talk with a look at streaming services, uh, and the churn rate for those continues to increase. A recent report from subscription analytics provider Antenna shows that the big streamers are losing subscribers. Now, many of these companies have increased the fees that they charge to, for subscribers. There's also uh, what has long been noted, the tendency of subscribers to drop um, particular uh, platforms when they've seen a series or a couple series they're interested in, wait until something else comes along that they want, and then resubscribe. All of this is financially challenging for the streamers. Joining us from Bloomberg, managing editor of media and entertainment, Lucas Shaw, who writes the Screen Time newsletter. Lucas, good to have you with us. What are we seeing in terms of of this churn? Is is that accelerating as the subscription prices increase? Uh, It it has accelerated reaching, you know, you cited the, the antenna data. What we've seen in the last few months have been record levels of cancellations, uh, at least from the time that they've been measuring it, which is the last few years, which is when we've had all of these different streaming services. I think you're seeing sort of a mix of you know inflation maybe causing people to cut back a little bit, uh, as well as rising prices making people a little more suspect or or more particular about which ones that they pay for. But the, we also are just seeing a little bit of a maturity of this marketplace because when a lot of these new streaming services came in, they were offering really steep discounts to try to get you in. And and now they're not doing that anymore. And so people are looking at it and saying, do I want to pay 8 to you know $17 a month for four or five or six different services or do I want to pick one or two? Well, and and one of the ways the companies are responding is with ad-supported tiers or standalone ad-supportive services, Amazon's Freebie being a prime example of this. Do we have early returns on how the ad-supported tiers or services are faring? It really depends on the platform. You know, Netflix introduced uh, an ad-supported version of its service, which was a little different strategy than the others, where it offered it as sort of a a lower-priced alternative, I think, to to limit the number of people who were canceling, because if you were considering canceling the, you know, $16 a month, you could instead pay $8 a month, $7 a month, and watch ads. That has signed up a few million customers. It's doing okay, but it's definitely been slow because it's all about the number of new people signing up. You know, Disney and and Amazon have taken different strategies. Amazon's about to roll out advertising on its prime video service. Disney has already done it where, you know, if you were already paying for an ad-free Disney Plus, if you wanted to keep that same account, excuse me, that same price, you were going to have to watch ads. If you wanted to skip ads, you were going to have to pay more. And so that meant that they had a lot more people sign up for the ad tier because it required effort to not watch ads. We're talking with Lucas Shaw, who writes the Screen Time newsletter at Bloomberg. Also with us is Tim Nolan, senior media tech analyst at Macquarie Group, a global financial services organization. Tim, thank you for being with us. I have to think it's challenging for some of the ad-supported platforms um, getting content because of both the writers and actors' strikes in succession. Does that appear to have affected the launch of the new ones? Uh, it was um, interesting timing with the strikes last year, wasn't it? And they went on for quite some time, which delayed production of content, of course, both on linear TV services and on the streaming services. So now we've got some catch up uh, to do, whether it's just finishing off the production or whether it's filming 
um, episodes. Um, so there's probably something like a six to nine month delay at this point um, of, of, of series coming on to the streaming services. Um, it happened at a time when investors were very heavily focused on the profitability of these streaming services, or I should say the lack thereof. So Disney Plus, for example, has targeted reaching profitability um, by the end of this calendar year. So that's, or this fiscal year, I think, ending September for Disney. So, so that's very important. Investors have been very concerned and have been marking down the prices of all of these media stocks, uh, except for Netflix, uh, for quite some time now, because there's been a concern that they will not be able to get these businesses to be anywhere near as profitable as the linear TV services were for many decades, which the streaming services are eventually replacing. So the advertising tier is one effort to generate more revenue per user to ultimately bring on a more profitable streaming service platform. Um, Disney bought out uh, the portion of Hulu that was owned, I believe, by Comcast, was it? Um, yep. And so they're sole, sole owners. They have the Disney Bundle, which is Disney+, Plus, ESPN+, Plus, and Hulu that people can subscribe to, getting a bit of a break if they take all three services versus what they would pay buying those independently. Tim, what are we going to be seeing with future bundling, even if we don't see mergers, say a Paramount and, and Warner Discovery merging and, and merging their streaming platforms? Are there other opportunities for bundling that would help to lower the churn rate? Mm. Yes, I think um, I think of this in two ways. Maybe there's internal bundling and external bundling, um, if that's the way to put it. Uh, you just mentioned Disney, which owns, uh, of course, all of Disney plus all of uh, ESPN plus. Well, I guess they own 80 percent of ESPN and they will soon own all of Hulu uh, when they sort out the final purchase price of that one third stake. But Disney controls Hulu. So um, they have, as you said, put these services into uh, a bundle, which is quite a bit cheaper than getting um, you know, them independently. Similarly, for example, um, Warner Brothers Discovery, uh, when they closed their merger, um, um, ended up launching HBO Max, combining it with Discovery Plus. And so you have a combination of all of that general entertainment, news and sports uh, and HBO content. So that's the internal side. I don't know what more there would be to do there other than major M&A. For example, you mentioned um, Warner Brothers and Paramount merging. But then there's the external bundles, which are a newer phenomenon and I think are very, very interesting. Um, which is, in a funny way, kind of going back to having the traditional distributors bundling content now being streaming content. So the Charter and Disney carriage agreement for linear TV that they uh, closed finally in September after a delay includes Charter TV subscribers will now have now do have access to um, to Disney Plus and to ESPN Plus in various tiers. Uh, similarly, um, I don't know if this is available yet, but Verizon, I believe, announced uh, a bundle of Disney Plus um, and Max, the, the HBO Discovery Plus combined service. So you've got, um, and that's on their wireless offering. So there, you've got these traditional distributors now becoming re-aggregators of bundled content. And I think we will see more of that to come in 2024. Tim Nolan joining us of uh, Macquarie Group, a global financial services firm. He's senior media tech analyst there. Lucas Shaw of Bloomberg, managing editor of media and entertainment. He writes the Screen Time newsletter for Bloomberg as well. 
Lucas, what about the glut of content? I mean, setting aside the delay in content because of of the strikes, but there is so much new content that's been produced, and it appears that that now the streamers are rethinking greenlighting so much stuff, and and that that's going to perhaps limit what actually gets produced. What effect do you anticipate that having on subscribership? Will will that cut subscribers if there's less new stuff to watch? Well, when you're looking at what these different companies want to fund or how much they want to spend on programming, they are cutting back in the aggregate. Maybe not Netflix. Netflix has sort of kept its budget pretty consistent. But the the companies like Disney and Warner Brothers Discovery and Paramount that had scaled back have have made or excuse me that had been you know funding a bunch of new stuff for these streaming services have started to scale back. But a lot of that scaling back is happening, I'd say, on the linear TV side. They just won't spend as much on new programs for broadcast networks like CBS or NBC or or ABC. They may not spend as much for cable networks. A lot of cable networks that had been funding original programming just aren't doing that at all anymore. It remains to be seen how much they're going to cut back in terms of originals at streaming. They may put originals on streaming and then sort of cycle those shows through TV. So say you have a show premiere on Disney Plus or Hulu or Max and then also air on a cable network. Because I do think there's a risk that if they cut back too much, that people will not feel the need to subscribe because and 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 perhaps even more to the point, they will not sign up. You know, we've seen that the the biggest driver of new customers or acquisitions for these services tends to be new programming that people are interested in. And so they're doing this this sort of delicate balance are trying to strike this delicate balance where they want to increase the cost of your service because they need to make more money uh, while simultaneously thinking about scaling back the investment in it. And that's a very dangerous combination. And I don't know that they've figured out the right balance just yet. All right. Meanwhile, linear television keeps limping along. The cable bundle continues. It looked like Charter Spectrum saying they were ambivalent about it, might even walk away from it if they they couldn't make their deal with Disney. Um, How much longer are we going to be seeing linear television and cable? Well, it's not going anywhere anytime soon, uh, at, at least as long as sports is 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 there, because all of the biggest sports properties in the U.S., uh, whether it's the NFL uh, or most of the NFL games, NBA, baseball, they are on linear television and people still watch those in droves. They're the most popular programming in the country. Um, and so linear TV is going to exist for for many years. Now, there could come a breaking point where the money being made from linear TV disappears and those properties need to migrate to streaming services. We're starting to see some experiments. You know, Amazon offers Thursday Night Football. I think there's an expectation that in the next NBA rights deal, you'll see one of those packages go to streaming. But linear TV, for all of its problems, still generates a lot more profit for most of these companies than streaming. So they need to keep it alive for as long as they can so they can get their streaming services to profitability. All right, Lucas, thank you so much. Good to have you with us again. Lucas Shaw of Bloomberg, his uh, newsletter he writes, his screen time. And our thanks to Tim Nolan of Macquarie Group, Financial Services Group, and he's the senior media tech analyst for Macquarie. Tear Talk on LA is 89.3. We continue talking television, but with television programs. It's TV Talk Thursday. The critics Liz Shannon Miller and Eric Deggins will hear what they have to say about the brother's son, the golden wedding, Letter Kenny, 
and only murders in the building going to linear television with its first season on ABC Network. We'll be back in just 90 seconds. Support for LAS comes from Will Gear Theatricum Botanicum, returning with a season of outdoor summer repertory theater on its scenic stage in the woods of Topanga, with picnicking in the gardens before the show. A Midsummer Night's Dream is back, along with The Winter's Tale, Wendy's Peter Pan, and Tartuffe Born Again set at a TV station in Baton Rouge. And for a contentious election year, Bernardo Cubria's The Hispanic, Latino, Latina, Latinx, Latin Vote. Tickets at theatricum.com. Support for LAS comes from Latino Theater Company at the Los Angeles Theater Center, presenting the world premiere of Mix Mix, the Filipino Adventures of a German-Jewish Boy by Boney B. Alvarez. Inspired by true events from the life of Ralph Price, after escaping Nazi Germany, a newfound tropical refuge in the Philippines is upended when Japan invades the islands. On stage through June 16th, tickets and information at latinotheaterco.org. It's Sun Darts, a song made by the Letterkenny character Jim Dickens in Season 12, Episode 2 of this series, which airs on Hulu, its final season. We'll hear about that momentarily as we're joined by critics Eric Deggins of NPR and Liz Shannon-Miller, Senior Entertainment Editor for Consequence. Let's get started with the first series, The Brother's Son, which is streaming on Netflix. It follows Charles' son, a Taipei gangster who settled into his life as a ruthless killer but has to come to Los Angeles. Michelle Rowe and uh, Justin Chien star in the series. Uh, Liz, please tell us about The Brother's Son. Yeah, so this is a very fun combination of kung fu uh, action and comedy, and actually some pretty interesting drama as well. It's a you know it's a family story, uh, very much in that tradition of uh, you know Asian martial arts uh, stories, but it's also you know a lot of fun. Uh, there's a it's it's hard. It's, it's I'm having a hard time describing it actually. But it's, I, I would say it's a must-see for anyone in Los Angeles just because it's a very much a Los Angeles show. It's uh, shoots It shoots on location. It's a real tribute to the San Gabriel Valley, which, as we all know, is the best place to get Chinese food in this in this area. Uh, it, it's it's really it's a it's a lot of fun if the genres in question are up your alley. That's and Michelle Yeoh is incredible. As all yeah, she never she's never anything less than great. Uh, the brother's son is streaming on Netflix, rated TVMA. Uh, all eight of the episodes premiering today. Now, the Golden Wedding is what has ensued from the Golden Bachelor, a huge hit for ABC and streaming on Hulu. Now we get the wedding by Jesse Palmer. Eric, uh, I assume you're very much looking forward to uh, this airing tonight. 
Uh, I don't know about assuming <laughs> that. <laughs> People who know me know that I am very critical of reality TV, so-called reality TV shows, and I'm particularly critical of the Bachelor franchise. But The Golden Bachelor uh, was a huge hit. It presented um, this 70-something uh, Bachelor, uh, Gary Turner. And, uh, you know, he went through the whole bachelor process and he found uh, the woman that uh, he decided he wanted to marry. And they have said that they wanted, even though the show only concluded a, a couple months ago, uh, they decided they wanted to uh, get married right away. But it's become this TV event. And one of the women who competed on the show is actually going to officiate this marriage tonight. And um, the the woman who who Gary said that the other woman, the runner up, who he he said he loved right until he told her he didn't, <laughs> she's actually coming too, even though she had emergency oh. surgery. So you know this is all you know it, it it's all sort of a gauzy soap soap opera that's wrapped up in this romance. People may recall that the Hollywood Reporter did some reporting and found out that Gary Turner Turner's claims that he hadn't dated since his wife died in 2017 weren't exactly exactly true and that um you know his employment history was kind of fudged by ABC to make it look as if he might be more upper middle class than actually he was which is just part of the the show's sort of bizarre focus on recasting romance as this sort of um you know upper middle class kind of thing but a lot of people loved uh watching these older people fall in love and and um and try to build a life with each other. And and this wedding special is going to further that. And I expect it will be as big a hit as the actual uh, show was. Eric, I so wonder whether devotees of reality TV believe what they're seeing is real or whether it's just a willful suspension of disbelief for the pleasure of what they're seeing acted out. I think they I think if you ask them, they would say that it's a willful suspension of disbelief. But I think when you actually ask them uh, about the people that they're watching, they believe uh, more of, of, of what they're being told about these people uh, than they're willing to admit when you ask them directly. And that's why when you hear people who've been on Vanderpump Rules or you hear people who've been on Below Deck or you hear people who've been on some of these shows talk about how they're taken advantage of by the production, fans are still surprised because they want to believe the illusion. They want to believe the story they're being fed, even when it's completely manipulated by producers and you are not told enough as a viewer to fully understand what you're seeing. Uh, and 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 that's the thing that I've all that's the problem I've always had with a yeah. lot of reality TV is that at, at its core, uh, a lot of it is a lie to the viewer. It is pretending that what it is showing you is what actually happened when what you're actually seeing could be highly manipulated in ways that producers don't admit or acknowledge. It's professional wrestling, but without the um, without it being widely understood that it's that it's like <laughs> professional wrestling. The Golden Wedding on ABC tonight at eight o'clock Pacific and then streaming on Hulu starting tomorrow. Letter Kenny in its 12th and final season, the Hulu streaming comedy starring Jared Kiso and Nathan Dales. Uh, Kiso and Jacob Tierney are the creators of the series. Liz, for those not familiar with Letter Kenny, please fill us in. Letter Kenny is uh, a bit hard to describe. It is a very singular comedy from that is extraordinarily Canadian in its attitude and its approach, but it's rural Canadian. Uh, don't get hung up on the whole Canadians are always nice uh, stereotypes. There's a lot of fist fighting in the show. But it's such a if, if you're a fan of Letterkenny, you know, the slogan, you know, the slogans, you know, the, the catchphrases, you 
it's it's such a wonderfully silly and Im silly immersive world to fall into. And so this is the final season of, but it's been a, of a very long running show. Uh, and it's, you know, it go it goes out as strong as it came in. And it's a very sweet, it, it's, it's a sweet and sad goodbye, but at the same time, uh, you know, uh, pitter patter get at or when it comes to spinoffs one hopes letter canny in its 12th and final season on hulu all of the episodes are available now all six of them only murders in the building of course has had three seasons that have streamed on hulu now abc obviously in short supply for content because of the recently settled strikes is going to be airing season one on broadcast television in case you don't Subscribe to Hulu. Steve Martin, Martin Short, Selena Gomez, the stars. Eric, your thoughts about uh, what I presume will be edited version of Only Murders on ABC? Yeah, it'll be edited because profanity that's allowed on streaming is not allowed in broadcast television. But it'll be interesting to to to, uh, to see how this works. CBS found success in bringing Yellowstone. Uh, from the world of uh, cable television and streaming on Peacock to uh, the CBS television network. And uh, they they started, ABC started airing these episodes of Only Murderers in the Building on Tuesday. Um, and, and they seem to have done pretty well as well. So I think what, we're, what that's going to do is it's going to prompt a lot of streaming services that are owned by companies that also own broadcast networks to think about whether or not they have other things that might also uh, work well on the broadcast network rather than paying a bunch of money to create an entirely original series. Why not take something uh, that's sitting uh, you know, on the streamer, and, and particularly something that may have come out years ago, like the first season of, of uh, Only Murders in the Building, and, and, and represent it to an entirely new audience. Now, if you're, if you're a Hulu subscriber, you've been paying to see Only Murders in the Building, and all of a sudden it shows up on broadcast TV, uh, essentially free, uh, that might be that might I think if, if the streamers do that too much, that may cause a problem where people say, well, why am I paying for the streaming service when I can wait a couple of years and see it for free? But uh, for right now, it seems to be something that's working. And I think we're going to see it happen more often with other streaming services and, and broadcast. Channels. I think, Eric, CBS has done that with the Star Trek Discovery, if I'm not mistaken. Um, well, that was a little that was a little different setup where um, they, they aired the first two episodes of Star Trek Discovery on CBS as the show was beginning. OK, um, which is which was a little different. But to they spur did, sign ups. Uh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which which was uh, which is a little different than taking a show that's already successful on streaming and then representing it on broadcast. Yeah, very good, very good point. Eric Daggins with us. Only murders in the building again. The first season is broadcast on ABC stations uh, on Tuesday nights. The first three episodes uh, are uh, made their debut uh, last week, and uh, episodes four through six are running. Uh, starting uh, next Tuesday. You're listening to our TV Talk segment every Thursday here on Air Talk on uh, LAS 89.3. Coming up, we'll have more series to hear about, including Pokemon Concierge on Netflix and Criminal Record on Apple TV Plus. Back in a minute.
That's the theme song of Pokemon Concierge, streaming on Netflix, the Japanese stop-motion animation series. Liz, what do you think of Pokemon Concierge? You know, I put this show on at the end of a very long, stressful day, and it it was like the waves of stress were just flowing off me, uh, just sh shifting off. Like it was, it's such a pleasant, cute show to watch. It, uh, it the episodes are short. It's just very, very much a story of a young lady who goes to an island that where the Pokemon go to vacation, and it's her job to make sure the Pokemon have a nice time on their vacation. That is it. That is the show. That is all you need. <laughs> the stop motion animation is beautiful. It's very tactile. There's like fuzziness to the characters. It's really pleasant. It's and, just a really nice time. And sounds very family friendly. Oh, yes. Extremely family friendly. You, you can have your kids beside you to tell you who the Pokemon are because <laughs> I do not know the names of Pokemon. I just know they're cute. We're talking about Pokemon Concierge, which has all four episodes out. They came out right before the new year on Netflix, rated TVPG. Criminal Record, a British crime drama streaming on Apple TV+. Plus. It stars uh, Kush Jumbo, Peter Capodley, and Stephen Campbell Moore. Paul Rutman is the creator of this series. Eric, what do you think of Criminal Record? Yeah, this is a really interesting drama. Uh, it's set in Britain, uh, and it features Cus Jumbo. People may remember her uh, from playing a lawyer on The Good Wife uh, and The Good Fight. Um, she plays a younger uh, police detective uh, who um, comes to believe that a Black man may have been uh, sent to jail for murder unfairly. And Peter Capaldi, who people will remember, played the 12th Doctor Who on this, uh, the 12th edition of the Doctor on Doctor Who. Um, they will, they, uh, um, Peter Capaldi plays the guy who led the task force, which may have been racist and may have unfairly put this guy in jail. And there's a cat and mouse game between Peter Capaldi's character and Cus Jumbo's character that's really interesting and, and gets at all the uh, disquieting notions of trying to examine how racism works in policing, how race works in modern day Britain, um, what, what it's like for a woman. She's a, a woman of color who's married to a white man and they have a mixed race child and they're, they're dealing with that. And and um, and Peter Capaldi's character has an odd connection to the survivor of the woman who the uh, black woman who was murdered. So it is a uh, it, it's a it's it's a wonderful stew of different um, you know plot lines and ideas that this series is trying to comment on. Criminal record streaming on Apple TV Plus. The first episode premieres. Next Wednesday, there will be a total of eight in the British series. Another British series, this on PBS, is Funny Woman, starring Gemma Arterton, Tom Bateman, and Arshur Ali. Morwenna Banks is the creator of Funny Woman. Liz? Yes, this is based on the Nick Hornby novel, uh, which is about a young woman in the 1950s who ends up becoming a television star. And it's it's gotten a little bit of, if you saw that last night in Soho, like the early episodes have a little bit of that vibe to them, just about, you know, enjoying the modness of uh, of London at that time. And uh, Jenna, Jenna is a really incredible comedic actress, and she really sells the idea that she belongs on television at, at that time, playing a very, quote unquote, funny woman. Uh, it's, you know, it's a good, if, if you're interested in, uh, you know, behind the scenes of, the, of making a television, 
if you're just in it for a good period drama, this is not period drama, even kind of period dramedy. It's, there's a lot of charm to this one. I had a good time. Funny Woman airs on PBS stations. The first episode premiering on January 7th. There'll be a total of six episodes in the series. Presumably it'll be streaming on the PBS platform as well. Season four of True Detective, the anthology series that streams on Max and is shown on HBO, will be arriving uh, coming up uh, very, very soon. There'll be a total of six episodes. Uh, and Jodie Foster and Kali Reese are the co-stars. Nick uh, Pizzolato is the creator of True Detective. Eric, please uh, share with us uh, about the series set in Alaska. Yeah, so people may uh, remember that True Detective is an anthology series. Uh, it was uh, originally started as a um, a set of, uh, I think, eight episodes featuring uh, Matthew McConaughey and Woody Harrelson. And every season they did it, they would have a different story with different actors. So in this fourth iteration, it's a completely different story. It's not much connected to the first one, although there is a couple of connections that I don't want to reveal because that's a spoiler. And uh, Jodie Foster plays uh, a law enforcement official in Alaska who's investigating uh, a, a very bizarre crime, a very bizarre uh, series of deaths. And, and um, as she digs into it with, um, she winds up having a partner with uh, a woman that she doesn't get along with who's indigenous. And we get a real look at, at uh, indigenous culture in Alaska. We get a real look at what it's like uh, to live in Alaska at a time when, you know, they have, you know, extended periods of darkness and it affects people's behavior. Uh, and uh, it, it's it's a really well done thing. And even though Nick Pizzolazzo created the, the, the first season and was heavily involved with some of the other ones, there's a there's a woman who's involved with um, uh, writing and directing you know, this series okay. of stories. So it's it's a little, uh, it has a different, different flavor, feel but it to is it, very yeah. well done. Yeah, Liz, just a quick comment, like 20 seconds on season four, True Detective. I just want to say the woman's name. Issa Lopez is the showrunner on the sh on the season, and she does an incredible job uh, really bringing her own flavor to the concept. And uh, the chemistry between uh, the two stars is fantastic. That's great. True Detective, its fourth season on HBO streaming on Max begins next Friday, January the 12th. I want to thank our TV critics for joining us, doing such wonderful work. Eric Deggins of NPR, Liz Shannon Miller of Consequence. Stay tuned. NPR's Here and Now comes up next. I'll be back with you tomorrow at 10 o'clock for Film Week, right after Austin Cross hosting the 9 o'clock hour of Air Talk. Have a great day. The LAS Spring Super Sweeps is happening now. You can win amazing prizes while supporting your source for local fact-based journalism. One lucky grand prize winner will get to choose a brand new Lexus or $25,000 in cash. Other prizes include an electric bike from Juice Bikes and $1,000 gas gift cards. Your donation of $60 gets you one entry to win. And the more you give, the more entries you get. Donate now at LAS.com sweeps.